Romans chapter 11, finally closing this great section of 9 through 11 out. Romans chapter 11. Romans 9 through 11 is concerned mainly with proving that the word of God to Israel had not failed because so many Israelites were rejecting Christ and were cut off from the promise of salvation. So for three solid chapters now, Paul has labored to show from the Old Testament how the gospel that he preaches is the fulfillment of the Old Testament word from God, that he was going to send a deliverer to free his people from sin. And God's people, the true descendants of Abraham we found, the man of faith, are actually composed of both Jews and Gentiles. In this way, Paul is going to say, all Israel will be saved. Meaning that the Israel to whom God made these promises are those from every nation, including Israel, who will call upon His name in faith, receiving the word of the gospel. The salvation of believing Jews and Gentiles constitutes the one vine, the one people of God in the world. He does not have two separate words of promise for two separate groups of people. The Word of God in Christ through the Gospel is the proclamation that declares God's perfect righteousness and the means by which all His promises are fulfilled to His one people. God's plan for creation sends Paul here at the end of this into a crescendo of pure Beautiful worship at the end of this section. The mercy of this God that is actually intended from the dawn of time for the whole world is an irrevocable gift that comes to us through the call of the Gospel. Nothing and no one can keep God from showing mercy to the whole world. And that includes you. Let me pray and we'll begin. Our Father, why should we gain from the death of Christ Your Son? We do not have an answer. But this we know and we proclaim that in His wounds we find our ransom. God, we thank You. May the grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ from Your hand, Your merciful hand, be in front of us this morning. Let us behold You in it. Open our hearts to receive these eternal truths help me to preach in a way that is worthy of them, in a way that everyone can understand. Keep me from putting myself into this passage, Lord. Preserve everyone here from the harm that I might do as a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. Help me preach. I ask that you would watch over everyone that hears. May they hear well. May you give them the desire to listen intently and to receive your truth, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen. So down in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins so how is it Paul is answering the question that all Israel will be saved when will that happen when all the Gentiles who believe come into the body of Christ that's precisely what the text says here they together with believing Israelites make up the true Israel 
to whom God made and will keep His promises. That's precisely what these chapters have labored to prove. Notice how those sentences work at the end of verse 25 into the beginning of verse 26. Until all the Gentiles God means to save have been added to His vine, all Israel is lacking. But when they are, through the preaching and believing of the gospel, then and only then, all Israel will be saved. This isn't really about a timeline. This is about the accomplishment of salvation among peoples. Meaning the true Israel is not an ethnic group. It's a vine made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. That is God's Israel as He defines it. As it is written in Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, which is what Paul quoted here in verses 26 to 27. The new covenant Isaiah speaks of, ratified by Christ in His life, death, and resurrection is established to bring the old covenant only with ethnic Israel to an end. That's also Hebrews 10.9. The deliverer promised has come. He has banished ungodliness from all his people through the covenant that takes away their sins, which the law could not do. So until every Gentile God means to save is brought in, Israel as a nation by and large will be hardened to the gospel. Most will not receive it, but many will, which is why they need missionaries, why we must proclaim the gospel to them. For salvation is found by believing in no other but Christ. And God's ultimate desire for creation will be fulfilled in His church. Verse 28, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So, During the time of the gospel's advance, which we're still in now, from Pentecost in Acts to the current day, Israel is our enemy as it pertains to the spread of the gospel. Not an enemy like uh, we're fighting them in a war or should be against them or look down on them or hate them or anything like that. But they are not for the spread of the gospel. God has a different purpose for for their rejection. He's hardened them in order to turn to us for our sake, but as God, uh, as regards God's eternal plan of election, they are in fact beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, even now, God has not fully cut them off. He's not turned away from them. These are people that He loves, always has. Even God's strategy of making them jealous of us is not to finally condemn them, right? That's not His overall ultimate purpose at all, but to draw them to repentance by causing them through making them jealous to hunger once more for God's blessing and God's favor. After all, in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Right? Once God has determined to give salvation and call people to it by the proclamation of the gospel, that will not, cannot be stopped by anyone but Him. There will be a full harvest from the Jews and the Gentiles until all Israel, now that Paul has clarified for us who that actually is. We can't just set that aside because we already have these preconceived notions about Israel as we head into Romans 9-11. through Romans 9-11 through in the progress of God's revelation is meant to refine our understanding of Israel. Now that Paul has clarified who that actually is and confirmed to whom the promises have been made until all of them have been gathered to the Father. Verse 34. In other words, proving 
that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. In the same way that we were once far off from God because of our disobedience, since God desires to save through the gift and calling of Jesus Christ to us, we Gentiles received mercy because Israel disobeyed it and God turned to us. But what this actually does, rather than reject Israel altogether, is establish the pattern by which God works in His mercy shown to us that makes them jealous. Their disobedience led to our inclusion But that is so they will once more receive God's mercy in salvation. Nothing can hinder the will of God in salvation. This isn't just for theology and how we read our Bibles. It's for our hope and our joy and our peace. Once God determines to save, He cannot be thwarted. He has accomplished salvation in Christ. And just as Jesus said in John 6.37... All that the Father gives him will come to him. For in verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. There it is. There's really what is going on here. That's what God has been doing. That's been his strategy throughout history. To consign us actually, without exception, all of us, to disobedience, giving the law that increased trespasses. The whole world, not to finally condemn us though, but to have mercy on all of us. Right Now everyone, he's, he's expanding what he's been saying, everyone is brought into the plan of God through which Israel was the earthly vessel to bring this Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world. It turns out God has consigned everyone to what He consigned them to because He desires to have mercy on everyone. And this is the way God does it. Right? That's very important given what we've read in 9 through 11 because nobody's left out here. He's consigned everyone to the same kind of disobedience because He desires to have mercy on everyone. Everybody's brought into the plan of God through which Israel was the earthly vessel in that plan to be the ones who would bring this Savior into the world. God consigns us. He sentences us. We read that in Romans 1. Paul is just expounding, expanding on what he said in Romans 1. He's explaining it. That we've all been given over to our desires. We've all been consigned in His wrath against sin to disobedience. Because this is the way God believes will push us to mercy. He gives us over to our sinful desires and passions because He wants to have mercy on us. And you might say, I don't understand that plan. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. It isn't an easy plan to understand. But through that, we see that if we're willing to suspend all our objection for just a moment, we do see then apparently... Apparently, the nature of our sinfulness, of our sin nature, we are so dead and lost in trespasses and sins. We love our desires, we love our flesh so much that unless, 
unless God brings us face to face with our condition by proving to us again and again. And listen, you can debate all day. Just look around. Pursuing your desires and what you want and what your flesh desires at any cost is going to destroy you, if not everyone else around you. It is not a good way to live. Right? It's, it's, you, you are going to destroy yourself. You will destroy others in the process. And apparently, unless we are brought to the end of our rope, unless we're brought face to face with our condition by seeing, by understanding that this isn't the way to life, all we do is destroy ourselves, we won't turn and repent. We wouldn't. But by this means, we will, many of us will, where and when God will always have mercy since that has been the point all along. That doesn't seem very fair. No, 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 no. No, 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 never say that. Never say that. First of all, who determines what fair is? Again, we all get some sense of this if we have children. Isn't it interesting that, that humans are born with an innate sense that they deserve fairness even before they even know what the word is or what it means? If you give one kid something and not another, you are going to hear about it. Right? You're going to hear about it. They're going to look shocked at you. It's, it's in us. We deserve certain things. We are owed certain things. And if you don't give them to us, we're going to let you know. That's human nature. Well, human nature is sinful. That's a wrong impulse. It's a wrong impulse. Fair in that understanding would have been God killing Adam and Eve immediately for their sin and ending the world in the Garden of Eden. You and I wouldn't even exist if God did what was technically, according to His own judging word, fair. Instead, God had a plan to save us that He put into motion with the selection of Israel in history to be this vessel in the world through which would come a Messiah that was fully God and fully man that could therefore atone for our sins. God loves the people through whom the Messiah came into the world. He loves Israel. He has not completely tossed them aside. Since God promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head for all creation, And since God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And since God promised Israel that whoever does the commandments will gain life by them. And since God promised David that his faithful descendant would one day rule the world. God sent Jesus to be that seed so that he might have mercy on everyone and draw them to himself from every nation. That's his people. Verse 32 then brings the argument for the faithfulness of God's promises in chapters 9 through 11 to an end. Right, this great section here in the middle of Romans. Here's the, maybe the, the most concise summary. God always keeps his promises. His word never fails. Never fails. When we talk about God, we're not dealing with normal. We're not dealing with, well, A, B, C, D, Two follows one, all this sort of thing. 
We, we don't break God down so that we can explain and understand what He's done. The problem in understanding that God's Word never fails was ours. It was in the fact that the word Israel, as we understood it, doesn't mean God made all His promises to the physical descendants of an ethnic nation. But He actually made them only to those who receive Him by grace through faith for forgiveness and righteousness. That's why you can't divide it up between, well, this is spiritual and this is physical. No, there's only one way that you become a child of God. And it's the same for both, for Jew and Gentile, because the children of God, as Romans 9 told us, are the only ones that get His promises. They're the only ones to whom He's made His promises. That should be massive for how we understand the Bible and the end times, by the way. You've got to start with your eschatology, your theology of the end times, way before you get to Revelation. So that we have the right definitions for the words. God's definitions. Only those who receive Him by grace through faith for forgiveness and righteousness, banking on His mercy, rather than pursuing righteousness on their own, are the children of God to whom He's made His promises. For their rejection of God's Savior in Christ, the Messiah that came through them, Israel has been hardened and set aside so that God may pursue the Gentiles He means to save and graft them in to His one vine. But, by making Israel jealous, what God actually means to do in His mercy is provoke them to repentance. This is God's overall plan for creation here in 1132. And it will be accomplished as God wills back in 1129. So in light of what all Scripture teaches, all Scripture, through the fulfilling, all-promise-keeping work of Christ, all Israel will be saved. Just like God promised. When, according to verse 25, God saves His full number of Jews and Gentiles by His grace in Christ and grafts them both as one new man back onto His one vine. And this that we're about to read is the only proper conclusion as we try to ponder all that divine glory. Because it, it challenges so many of our presuppositions. It really it is, is a like a, a revelation of sorts that, oh, that, that's how things work. That's what's been going on. Well, how do we respond to this? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Isaiah 40.13, Job 15.8 Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Job 35.7 and 41.11 For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And Amen. God's plan and God's will and how He brings about our salvation and the fulfillment of His promises is simply beyond our comprehension. That's what we need to admit here. This is Paul. Paul comes to the end of this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and breaks out into an expression of praise where he says, this is unbelievable. I don't even understand all this. Right? And it's centered in the character and the personhood of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. As Paul tries to ponder everything he's just written, he can't even grasp it. He can't even grasp it. 
We love to have our little conferences and our charts and our tables and we just check every box and figure everything out because if we do, then we'll be able to kind of anticipate ahead of time when these things are happening. No. That's not the goal. A true Berean who studies the Word ten times out of ten is going to end up in worship, in doxology, not in confidence, and start doing theological math. Paul can't even grasp what he's written, but verses 33 to 36 are not just the closing of chapters 9 through 11. It's not just the response to that, but are Paul's response to God's justification of the ungodly by grace through faith as pure gift from Romans 1 to 11. This is the crescendo of the first section of Romans. All of it ends in 33 to 36. Paul doesn't give a single instruction or implication of the justification of the ungodly until he gets to chapter 12 where you have that big therefore, right? Therefore, in light of chapters 1 through 11, in light of the fact that this God is gracious beyond imagination and His plan is too hard to figure out and exhaust, the divine plan outlined here, which includes who Israel is, and in fact how all Israel will be saved, is in full accordance with and in fulfillment of God's Old Testament Word. That's all Paul has argued from. Proving chapter 9, verse 6. Remember, the point of this section was to answer the objection that the Word of God to Israel had failed. Now, once we realize who Israel is, which is confirmed here as the church in verse 26, it's no longer a question. Now we're meant to say, ah, that's been answered. Here's how it works. Israel is God's people of all nations by grace through faith. I know that challenges many preconceived notions and assumptions and beliefs and convictions, but you have to argue with Paul. You have to argue with Paul. The Word of God has not failed. Why? Because everyone to whom He's made His promise will receive His grace. That's why. Which means Romans 9 through 11 proves the point of the whole letter that was given in chapter 1, verse 17. That in the gospel, the unfailing, promise making, promise keeping righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel. In the gospel, not in anything else. Right? It's, it's not proven by the land, it's not proven by this thing or that thing, it's proven in the gospel. That's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ and in Christ alone, in no other place, in no other person. And who is in Christ? Everyone who believes by grace through faith. Paul writes how unsearchable are his judgments. Who, who can plumb the depths of God until he figures out God's judgment? Who can do that? How inscrutable are His ways? Who can search and examine and study and pontificate until they've figured out everything about how and why God does what He does? No one. It's impossible. There will be parts of it that don't seem to make sense. That's okay. That's the natural conclusion. It, beloved, we believe by grace through faith. We don't believe because all our questions get answered. They don't. They won't. We trust the Word that has been given and we trust that God is in control doing what He wants to do and all of it 
will work out exactly as He intends it to. That's faith. That's faith. We can only know what God reveals. We can only know what He peels back the curtain long enough for us to catch a glimpse of and nothing else. No more, no further. No one knows the mind of the Lord enough to counsel Him or to give Him advice. Paul is anticipating that argument where somebody's going to jump up and say, but shouldn't... No. 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 Who, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to become His counselor? Nobody has the right or ability, it doesn't matter what nation they're from, to counsel God and tell Him what He has to do in order to be God and be consistent and be holy. God tells us how that happens in His Word. No one knows the mind of the Lord enough to give Him advice, to remind Him of what He's supposed to do. Who has enough knowledge to examine the Eternal One? Who could ever get it in their mind that God owes them something? You understand the place of that argument, of that statement here, particularly in chapters 9-11. through 11. When has God obligated Himself and put Himself in our debt by what He's done? That's not the way His promises work. God is not bound to us. God is bound to God. Who has ever given God a gift that has put God in their debt, that He owes them something, that they have to be repaid. God owes us nothing but what He promises to give. All His favor is based on His grace. That's why anyone can have it. There isn't anybody sitting in here this morning that could say they're beyond the scope of God's grace. Unless that's where they want to be. But don't say that God isn't merciful enough or gracious enough. That's not what the issue is. Receive Him. He saves you. He forgives you. What you have done in that moment becomes irrelevant. Not like it didn't happen, but because of the sufficient power of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ for you. That's how God keeps His promises. It's meant for the worst of us because it's so great. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You and I are empty receivers. We can't throw God in the dock. We can't put Him on the stand. We don't know enough. We can't understand enough because it's from Him and through Him and to Him that everything exists. You say, I just don't think it's right for God to be like that. Your problem with God then begins in Genesis 1. He's the Creator. You know what happens in your home if you give in to the desires of your kids. Their demands. You know what will happen. And all of us parents have probably done it a time or two because we get tired of listening to the whining. Right? All right. Goodness sakes, just leave me alone, right? Just be quiet. You know, my son has learned the art of like, I'm going to press until you say yes. 
right? I'm just going to... And the way that he does it, the way that he's so crafty about it, you know. But, but you know the chaos that will ensue if as the parent you don't pull rank and say, no, it, this is the way it's going to be. So listen, don't pretend like that in and of itself is somehow evil. We do it all the time. We, I know I talk about restaurants a lot. I, I, I was a server. I was a cook, a, you know, waiter. I almost said I was a waitress, but, but like, <laughs> no, I, um, I said I don't have an apron, right? So I, I, but restaurants are interesting places. We walk into these places believing that the people on this staff owe us a good time. Right? So I want, I want my steak perfect. I want, you know, I want it in the, in the time. I don't want to feel hungry. I don't want to feel thirsty. My drink's ready. You know, we, we all make demands. We all have expectations. Don't for a second think that ours are all right and somehow God is mistaken or cruel or mean because He has the audacity to be God. I don't know how to like, you're going to have to reckon with this. You deserve death. Because God says so. The difference with this judge is that he has brought amnesty to all who receive it. Which ought to make us more mad than him being holy and just and sovereign. Because that means guilty people can get off with God scot-free. And that is offensive. Not on earth. It's not like you can use Jesus as a literal get out of jail free card. No, if, if you've commit a, a, committed a crime, you have a sentence to serve to man. But can that be washed away and forgiven before God? Absolutely. And it will never be brought up again. And before you get angry at God for being that gracious, make sure you realize who defines what bad is. And who defines what evil is. For a God to say, this is what you should do, and for us not to do it, it doesn't matter how big or small it is. It's sin. And we must repent of our sin. And this text is telling you, listen, the mercy of God is incomprehensible. The way that His plan works, we're not going to be able to grasp all of it. We're going to struggle with accepting all of it. It's going to seem unfair sometimes and odd. That's the way it's meant to be. We haven't got a grasp on this grace. That song we sang, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, that's one of the most beautifully written hymns of the modern church. It doesn't scratch the surface of who God actually is. It's a beautiful attempt. All music is. Beautiful attempts at expressing something real. But no song we write is going to capture the mercy and the grace of this God. From Him, to Him, and through Him are everything that exists. And that's going to boggle your mind again. You say, does that mean, well, beloved, we can't explain Him. We can't explain Him. We can only, we're mockingbirds, right? We're not innovators. We just sing what we've heard. We say what we've heard. God is the source, the means, and the goal of everything. So to Him, and to Him alone be glory forever. Amen. So be it. 
That's the way it is. Has been. And evermore shall be. So, what is the proper response to this God then? Right? What would make sense in light of God's incomprehensible and glorious plan to save the ungodly from every nation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone apart from works? It's what Paul, it's worship. It's the only thing that makes sense. Worship. That's what it means to have faith in Him. It's really a recognition of Him. Worshiping Him alone as the all-sufficient, promise-keeping Savior. You and I get to glory in the cross. We look away from, uh, away from ourselves. Always and everything. And only to Him as the source, the means and the goal of our salvation. To His glory. Nothing can stop God's mercy. Nothing. Until God decides to stop it. God had a plan to provide a Savior for sinners, not because something outside of Him obligated Him to do this, right? But because that's who He is. He doesn't have to be merciful. And yet He is. He is. This plan is unstoppable. The mercy is irrevocable in verses 29 and 32. If God wants to show mercy to you, and the Bible tells us that He does, I want you to know there's not a human court. There's no individual. There's no friend. There's no family member. There's no law. There's no exception. There's no piece of evidence. There's no crime committed. There are no words spoken that can't be taken back that can keep God from doing so. That can keep God from being merciful to you. It's His call. No one else's. Part of the plan is the wonder we feel when we hear this, if it truly sinks into us. For everyone else in the universe, even the people that love us the most, right? there's a place we can go with them where it's too far. There are some things that can't be healed and fixed. There there, There are just places we could go with people, even the ones that love us the most, that are too far. But not with God. Not with God. God's will and God's plan is to show us mercy. The disobedience has already been accounted for in the plan. So receive Him. Receive His mercy. In fact, if we hadn't been so disobedient, there wouldn't be any need for mercy. So take it. Take what's been given. Even you believers, receive this. Your sins are forgiven. God is not angry with you anymore. Right? It's it's done. God will not revoke His own word in order to stop showing mercy to you, believer. Trust the promise because He keeps it. Have faith. An unbeliever, God's desire is to show mercy to you. You don't realize it, but He's been showing it to you all your life. Receive Him now as your own Savior. Another great song we sing, Our sins there are many, His mercy is more. Claim as your own what Christ has acquired. 